during the protection courses at Michael Ellis's School for Dog Trainers in California, Michael gives a lecture on the drives and forms of aggression. This is part three of that lecture. We talked about active and reactive dogs. I use this term in interchangeably in obedience and protection. The active dog is the one who's made the connection between their behavior and what's happening in the world. Uh, in, in terms of protection dog, it's the dog that understands their behavior is having an effect on the decoy and is driving what's happening here. The reactive dog is the dog that waits to see a cue from the helper or from the environment to actually express uh, uh, their drive. They're not trying to do things to get something started. They wait until they're threatened or they wait until somebody yells or wait until the handler tells them or whatever else it is to actually go into the mode where they're, uh, where they're working at it. So the active dog is a much easier dog to train. Again, they're supplying the energy, so we have to do less things, and they're less likely not, and they're more likely to trigger in situations that we want them to uh, without specific signals from the helper. So defensive aggression is always a reactive form of aggression. The dog has to perceive threat and has to see something threatening to trigger in defensive aggression. That's why frequently it's not very functional for some of the, the disciplines that we want the dogs to go out and actively do something. So defense drive, for instance, has no place in a police dog going and finding some passive person in a dark building and biting them. Right? They need a trigger for that. They need to feel threatened, so they need somebody to threaten them personally. And so that's a reactive form of aggression. So when we talk about active and reactive, we talk about the same thing in obedience, a dog that has made connections between their behavior and getting rewards or punishments, and, or a dog that's waiting to see some signal. Ooh, look, you have a ball, or ooh, look, you have food, so now I'll, go, I'll, I'll start to pay attention to you, whatever that is, same kind of concept. Auditory stimulator, it's the thing, it's the noise that I make while I'm doing bite development with a dog so that I have a built-in tool later on to stimulate that dog if I need to help the dog come into drive. So as I become more physically passive, like, so when we start out with a young dog, I wave the equipment around a lot, I run a lot, I made a lot, make a lot of activity to make the dog interested. As we progress, I want to feather my activity down to the point where the dog will focus on me even if I'm passive. And then frequently while I'm feathering off my activity level, it's nice to have some auditory way of stimulating the dog to bring them into drive. So I make my little noise, or we use a clatter stick. Lots of people in, in Schutten circles use a whip. They crack the whip in the background, and that whip cracking noise becomes a stimulation to the dog. I choose not to use a whip because the dogs frequently then stimulate on gunfire and other loud noises, which I'd prefer they didn't go into bite drive every time they hear, go into, the, go into protection mode, I should say, every time they hear a gunshot or a firecracker or something like that. So I tend to use one that I can, I can use comfortably in a variety of situations. Um, we have avoidance behavior. We talked about all the classic signs of avoidance. Uh, the dog that's pretending you're not there, sniffing, ears back, obviously moving away, positioning the handler between uh, uh, the dog and something that's making them uncomfortable. A lot of the normal stuff that we would kind of see, backing away slightly, uh, changes in demeanor, and that sort of thing. Uh, we talked about dominance and social rank uh, uh, a little bit where I said that uh, I think very few dogs out there are truly dominant dogs, the dog that really thinks they're in charge of the world. Um, and the, dom the truly dominant dogs tend not to be aggressive dogs for the most part because they're so confident. Uh, they will occasionally express aggression very strongly if you're trying to force them to do something they don't think they need to do and don't want to do. But usually those dogs are not aggressive um, 
unless you're trying to force them to do something. They don't feel threatened by normal everyday situations because they're so self-confident frequently. Many dogs have uh, aspects of dominant aggression, but these are the dogs that I call, again, socially upwardly mobile. They're opportunistically dominant, meaning they'll try something and see if they get away with it, and if it works, then they'll do it more, and they'll attempt to take control of the situation. So, like Debbie's dog, and she said the, the dog would, when the dog was young, the dog would growl at her or try to bite her when she tried to get it off the couch or whatever. But, it, but the dog is not dominant. The dog is very easy to convince that that's a bad idea. So you correct the dog a little bit, and she's like, oh, I'm sorry, oh, so, uh, yikes, right? So you, she's very easily dissuaded from that stance. But she's, not, she's willing to try. So she's socially, socially upward, mo upwardly mobile-minded enough to give it a shot and see if it's going to work for her, right? And in some that's why uh, like pet dog people frequently create social rank problems with their dogs because the first time their dog growls at them, they go, oh my God, my dog growled at me, right? And next thing you know, the dog's like, ha ha, I got you right where I want you. If I don't want to do something, just growl or just bite you or whatever, and they create these things. But those dogs, in my opinion, were not dominant dogs because if somebody had even done a modicum of, of correcting them for that initial behavior, they would have stopped immediately. Like, oh, I'm sorry, I was just checking. <laughs> Did you really mean I had to get off the couch, right? So. And, and a lot of uh, behavior, and the reason I don't like all the dominance talk is that it's way overused. People use it to explain everything around dogs, you know, and to the point where it, it becomes a detriment. And a lot of bad stuff has been done to dogs who are not truly dominant because people were perceiving dominant signals, right? Ooh, look, a dog put his paw on your leg. He's trying to get on top of you. He's trying to dominate you, right? All that kind of stuff happens constantly. Anything the dog does. And then people are alpha rolling their dogs and pinning them down and all kinds of crazy stuff like that, right? Which is mostly unproductive. Yeah. A dog that is truly dominant, would that be then an undesirable characteristic? For yes. Dogs? Yeah. Because you can't, you won't be able to train them. You won't be able to train them because they're not going to give up the fight. They're not going to finally say you're in charge. Now, sometimes we can manipulate them, and I know some of those dogs that have gone on and to compete, but they, they, they very rarely win and do well because what happens is if I can manipulate the hierarchy of the things that they want, then I can control behavior. They're doing things to get to something that they want, and while, as long as they think that, they're great. But as soon as you run up against something that they don't want to do and they've decided that they don't feel like doing it, no amount of pressure from you is going to make them do it because the truly dominant dog never really gives up in his head. Like, so even if you beat him senseless and electrocute him afterwards, he's still going to think, I'm still in charge, that you won the battle, but you haven't won the war. And he's going to come back for you again, right? So those dogs are just too hard to train at some point when they resist, right? So the really dominant dog is a dog that you go, you know, cool, just hang out. Maybe you breed him. Right? <laughs> you say, like, great, because you're not, again, like we talked about breeding a little bit the, of the, anecdotally over the course of the week, and how you kind of breed over what you want, knowing you're not going to get a whole bunch of dogs like that. Uh, so that assertiveness that comes with that and that confidence can frequently be a great thing, but a really, truly dominant dog is a pain in the neck to train. Right? They're great as long as you're not trying to force them to do something. And if they're getting what they want, great. If they're not, then they can be very intractable, and it's hard then to put them into avoidance. Absolutely. So I want a dog that thinks that he can beat the decoy, but I don't want a dog that thinks he can beat me too and everybody else on the planet. Right? I want the dog that thinks he can beat his adversary out there in protection work. I want him to be subordinate to me, ideally, to be willing to take a subordinate role to me, 
and willing to th and thinks that he can he he or she can uh, dominate the decoy or the bad guy or whoever else in the world, right? So I would love a dog that thinks they're dominant over everybody but me as the handler can frequently be a great and very functional dog in terms of protection circles, right? But a dog that that wants that really thinks they're the number one creature on the planet, that's that's rough. <laughs> we that's sort of undesirable for training. But there's confidence things that come with that, right? So those dogs, in my opinion, would probably be va valuable to keep around. Excuse me, uh, keep around as a as a breeding type dog because of the confidence that tends to come with that, knowing, of course, that you're not going to get breed a dominant dog and get ten other dogs like that. They're exceedingly rare. If you'd like to watch some of the free streaming videos that I have on my website, you can go to this web address now. <laughs>